Welcome to the 10th podcast in our sermon series, Finding Jesus in Ecclesiastes. I'm Dan Rambeck, one of the elders at City on a Hill Church, located in Rosemount, Minnesota. Our service is live streamed every Sunday at 10 a.m. from our YouTube channel. Join us as Bruce Bentley continues the series with a sermon titled, In the Presence of the King. Love praying, love spending time with God. So this morning, uh, we're back in Ecclesiastes chapter 8. And just in case you had a rough week this past week, you know, there was a, an election, okay? I don't know, maybe you heard about that this past Tuesday. Um, so in case you didn't come out so great, uh, and you weren't entirely pleased with the election, maybe you should have voted for this guy. Uh, there, there's a term for this, Rick Rolling, right? Okay. <laughs> Okay. Now, those of you who remember the 80s and British pop music, maybe the melody of this song is going through your head right now. I've planted something in you that you will not easily be able to remove. <laughs> All right. So, uh, not everybody is entirely happy, but something interesting happened. A whole lot of people voted for a midterm election. Uh, CBS News reported that an estimated 113 million people voted. Approximately 49% of eligible voters at a midterm election. So the interesting thing with that is, some really smart person at the University of Florida, Florida say, said, the last time the voter turnout reached 49% uh, in a midterm election was 1966. So after the final tally comes in, and if it actually goes up to 50% uh, this year, then you have to go back to 1914 to get a turnout rate that's above 50%. So that's a big deal. And as all the media was telling us, this is the most important election ever, right? Did you catch that message? At least since the last election, right? And then until, well, the next most important election comes, because they're kind of all that important. But, you know, whether you're happy or not, there's one thing that I think no matter what your, you know, your political color or idea or background is, I think there's something we can all be thankful for. At least we can vote, right? So there's a whole lot of people today, and especially in ancient times, are you kidding me, vote? <laughs> I mean, what we have and the history of the world is truly a remarkable thing. So we can be grateful for that, along with our veterans who helped to establish and maintain that, right? So uh, let's take a, a quick look back in time. That's kind of this weird artist rendition of King Solomon and all his splendor in his court, uh, taking us back to ancient times where a king ruled. Now, we haven't had a king in over 200 years. In fact, it's getting close to 250 years since independence, right? 20 what? Do the math quick. 2026? Okay. So we had, who remembers, 70, or 19, <laughs> who remembers 1976? Some of you are at least as old as me, right? So we may also get to remember 250 years. That's kind of cool. Would that be the bisesquicentennial? So don't Google that now. But, you know, we have, this, we, we have the centennial, sesquicentennial, 
bicentennial, does that mean it's the bisesquicentennial? Somebody figure that out later. Don't Google it now, but I'm kind of curious. So 250 years is coming up that we've had opportunities to vote. But the vast majority of the history of recorded world stuff, uh, no, not so much. Uh, And where we go back is uh, to King Solomon, the preacher, the book Ecclesiastes, ancient times, centuries before the time of Christ, where nobody voted, and life and political life in the kingdom was entirely different. So chapter 8 leads us into that. So let's read uh, the beginning of chapter 8. And I don't know why that just happened, but I would like to go back to those verses. Do we know? Did I do something crazy? And it's going line by line. (laughs) I don't know. Okay, we'll stop there and we'll see what happens in the next slide. Uh, Chapter 8, verses 1 through 9. Who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme. And who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt." Now, all sorts of, you know, these are wisdom sayings, ancient times, uh, little poetry in the original language mixed in. And some of it seems direct, like, oh, I get that, while other parts, if we admit, I don't get that, Uh, are a little bit trickier to interpret. But all of these things that we just read that we're looking at have to do with what it's like to be in the presence of the king, Okay. So again, we don't really have any clue. We have maybe some political similarities here and there, but no idea, really. The concept in ancient times, King Solomon, right? In ancient Israel, people coming before the king in his courtroom. What would that be like? Well, we we get just a little bit of it, a little taste of it this morning in these nine verses about what it's like to be in the presence of power. Uh, in the presence of someone who at the time would have all these majestic names, Almighty probably being one of them. Someone who could say, who could decree, who could rule to do pretty much whatever he wanted to do, whether you like it or appreciate it, whether you benefit benefit from it directly or not, the king does what the king wants. So that's where we're going. Very foreign very difficult for us to comprehend, but I'm trying to get us into that presence of the king this morning as we consider three different things where the preacher of this book takes us. 
Number one is allegiance to the king. Are you keeping your oath to serve and remain faithful to the king? So he says, the preacher of Ecclesiastes, I say, verse 2, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Now, uh, uh, interpreters uh, have a hard time with this, with this sentence and, and how, the best way to bring it over to English. Uh, my translation says because of God's oath to him, uh, but it also could be, be translated because of your oath to God. And the different scholars I read say, well, it's kind of a draw. It's basically, the language is basically the same thing. God has made a commitment for this ruler to be in place whether you like it or not. Uh, we don't get a vote. We don't have any decision whatsoever in this. God has put him there. So in a sense, that's like God making an oath. God has made a commitment for Solomon in this ancient time to be the king, right? But also, if you are a loyal subject, then you pledge your allegiance. You make an oath to the king, saying, yep, you're my king. I will follow you and you alone, I will serve you, I will be loyal to you. So it goes really both ways in this language this morning. So let's talk a little bit about making oaths, okay? That's something else we don't do a whole lot. We have legal documents uh, that we have to sign if you, make a, if you have a mortgage, you know. I remember the first time Jennifer and I bought a house back in Boone, Iowa. And the first time we sat down to go through the paperwork, Oh my goodness, I was literally shaking at the end of that ordeal. You remember what, was like, what that was like for the first time? A stack of papers. Now this means blah, blah, blah. I don't know what that means. You know, sheets of paper filled with legalese stuff. Okay, sure, I'll sign that. <laughs> what did I just do? Let me flip it over and all this means, okay, <laughs> I'll believe you. I'll trust you. But as far as taking an oath... Uh, before uh, a political power, we don't do that anymore. Now, maybe they still do that in England, in the United Kingdom. Do they still do that? Maybe it's more uh, of a procedural thing. Uh, but we don't have monarchy, so we don't know directly what that's like. But people in ancient times, you better believe an oath was made, especially if you're serving within the court of the king. If you are in the king's presence, you better believe it will be required of you to make an oath and to follow through on that. Many examples throughout Scripture, especially ancient times, of people making an oath. Uh, people swore an oath, a promise to God. So you go way back to the time of the Exodus and God bringing his people out, okay? But uh, now that once he brought them out of Egypt, the ancient Jews, once he brought them through the Red Sea, and the Egyptian army was no more. At that point, God said, you are now my people, and here are my terms, uh, and will you agree to them? So the people swore an oath to God uh, to be their only God, to serve him and to follow him. David, King David, before he was King David, David and Jonathan made an oath to each other to be each other's kind of sacred covenant friends, okay, to support each other. Um, there are oaths between kings that are made in uh, the Bible, and many of those broken, well, probably all of them were broken at different times or another. So there are many examples of uh, oath 
making, and God takes that kind of thing very seriously. There are matters of life and death. So just, just like being in the presence of the king in ancient times, if you made an oath, if you swore allegiance, and if you didn't keep that loyalty and allegiance, guess what? Your life is in danger, it, like in, in an immediate right now kind of sense, if you don't stay loyal to the king. An oath was the, really the, the functional part of a covenant. Uh, that was made sometimes between people, sometimes between kings, and sometimes between people and God. You swore an oath, and that helped to establish a covenant. So there are also examples of that in Scripture. And if you go way back to Genesis chapter 11, Genesis chapter 12, Abram at the time uh, speaks with God, and uh, they, he establishes a covenant with God, and it says, kind of weird, so foreign to us, uh, a passage where there, is, there are animals that are cut in two. Uh, anybody remember that passage? Or maybe you're familiar with that. If not, here's, here's the general gist of it. To establish a covenant between Abram and God was very similar to how people today established sacred covenants. When they made an oath, Okay, and it was a big deal. You had to follow through on it. It wasn't, you know, just, am I going to show up for dinner tonight? It was, you know, matters of life and death, sacred oath, swearing, covenant stuff. There would be an animal that would die. And just with Abram and God, animals were killed. They were sliced in half. It's a gory, bloody mess. Uh, But the interesting thing with Abram is uh, what he was used to is you know, the, the people making the covenant would walk through those bloody animals that were cut in half. And the symbolic nature, very serious sacred nature of the covenant is, if I walk through that, what I'm saying is, if I break our covenant, what happened to these animals, I want to happen to me. Let me die. I will die. If I don't follow through, I should die, you know, because of this covenant. It's that big of a deal. Now, the interesting thing with Abram and God is, Abram didn't pass through. God did. So hold that. Hold that in your thought. Hold that somewhere in the back of your mind. Uh, So, uh, God, so take this. Take this in. It was serious with Abram, serious uh, in what we're looking at this morning, the oath made before the king. God is just today, is just as holy and is just as demanding, just as serious about covenant making today as he was then. Because sometimes, if you're familiar with the Bible or, and you see kind of a disconnect between Old Testament, it's old and there's a lot of bloody, gory stuff, and New Testament, and God seems to be happier than he was in the Old Testament. Uh, if you're kind of used to that, uh, this is maybe kind of a wake-up call this morning. Because God is still God. God didn't change. God didn't become less serious about oaths or covenants. They are still a big deal to him. Nothing has changed with God in that respect. And we need to make sure we have that clear, okay? God didn't become somebody different in the New Testament. He didn't decide to to change himself, his, his temperament, his personality, his attributes, they are the same eternally, okay? So allegiance is still a big deal with the king, whether it's the king in Solomon's day or our king of kings. Let's go on. 
Integrity in the presence of the king. Integrity basically means this. Where are you going to take your stand? Chapter 8, verse 3. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause. For he, meaning the king at the time, for he does what he pleases. So, context. Solomon's time, ancient times. You're in the presence of the king. The king is not going to tolerate a subject switching his or her allegiance. And you can understand why. He's the king. He's not going to mess around with someone who makes an oath of loyalty in the presence of the king and then decides, eh, I didn't really mean it. I'm going to, ah, I feel differently today about you, king, or where my life is going right now. I'm going to switch things up a little bit. King would take, well, the king would not tolerate that at all, nor will he tolerate a subject uh, doing something or standing for something evil that's a part of his court. So we have the understanding here in Ecclesiastes that the king is a good king, okay? He, and he doesn't tolerate evil things or wrong things. He stands for what is right. So he's not going to put up with a subject anywhere near him that takes a stand for something that is wrong. His judgment will be swift. In verse 4, no one has the authority to question the king because the king has ultimate authority. His word, his judgment is supreme. So keep, keep the king's command and be wise with all things, verse 5 tells us. So the point is this. In this ancient kind of wording, here's what he's saying. Don't knee-jerk react to something that you hear or see is wrong or that you think probably is wrong or unjust or unwise. Don't run away from it instantly. You need to be thoughtful. You need to be wise what's going on. But at the same time, at the same time, be careful with where you finally take your stand. So be thoughtful. Consider what's going on. No, don't do the knee-jerk reaction. Uh, but if what is happening truly is evil or wrong, don't you dare stand with it. Because just as that person or that issue will be judged, you will be judged if you are found at the end of the day on the wrong side of things. That make sense? That's what he's teaching us in this kind of ancient way. So uh, you have a reason, you have a very real reason to fear the king. If you stand in opposition to him and what he has determined is right, you are in trouble. You are in immediate trouble standing in the presence of the king. So, integrity is a complicated thing, is nuanced in this kind of ancient way of looking at it, and it requires wisdom. It requires thoughtfulness. You don't want to knee-jerk, yet at the end of the day, you better be in the right place. Integrity matters before the king. And one more consideration. Destiny. Where will you be? Where is it that you are going? Verse 1. Who knows the interpretation of a thing? Uh, the big question mark. Who knows? Who is like the wise? So many times, over and over again, we're hearing about wise people or wisdom. And we keep getting this frustrating non-conclusion. 
to everything that the, peach, the preacher is throwing out to us. Who knows for sure? Well, we don't know. In his kind of pessimistic way of looking at, you know, the glass half empty, uh, we don't know for sure, but that always points us back to the one who does know for sure. So where will you be when the end comes? You can't control anything in your life. We keep hearing that over and over again, right, in this book. You really, you think you are in control, but you're not. Really the only thing, here's my side note, the only thing we can control in life is our response to the uncontrollable, right? Everything. We don't know what the rest of this day even is going to bring. The only thing we can do is be in charge of our response to it. So, verse 8 contains two different thoughts to consider that I think are pretty interesting. Uh, Verse 8 again. No man has power, my version says, to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. So I'll stop there. No person has power. We think we have power. We think we have power over lots of things. We really don't. But it's over a couple different things. So two different quick thoughts there. The second one is not so hard to understand, and we've looked at it from many angles already. Nobody knows the day of death. Every year we pass the anniversary of death. We just don't know which day it is. And we are in no control of that. God is. So we've been talking about that on all many different times, and yet one more time it appears in verse 8. So we don't know. No power over the day of death. But here's this other thought. The first thought there. No man has power to retain the spirit. So at first glance, it kind of seems like, well, he's just kind of repeating the same idea, right? No power over the spirit. And that's at least part of it. Uh, One scholar I read said, here's another, there's another way to translate this verse that I think is worth our consideration this morning. Another way to translate it is, uh, hold his spirit captive. So verse 8, no man has power to hold his spirit captive. So he's introducing really an original thought that coincides with, yeah, we don't know the end of our lives, we don't know the day of our death, but Just as importantly for us to consider this morning, just as the Spirit, uh, that can also be translated wind, okay, in the Bible, no one knows, especially in ancient times, now we know barometric pressure and all that jazz, but in ancient times, you don't know where the wind comes from or where it's going, no one's in charge of that, right? Uh, That's another way to translate the word spirit, Uh, but similar to that, your own spirit, your identity, your personhood, the essence of who you are is also difficult to control, uh, even the next day, but even a few years down the road. Now think about it. Th- think about it. this is worth it. This is worth our consideration for a few moments. Uh, so let's land on this. Uh, have you ever had that moment where you wonder whether it's an old friend or family member, the high school kid you knew, or somebody from college, maybe somebody from church? Uh, past or present, somebody you knew that I really appreciated them or I looked up to them, I valued their input, they were a good role model, whatever happened to so-and-so. Well, they're not the same person once you find out that they were when you knew them and you respected them. Do you ever have something like that happen in your life where somebody I really knew and liked and looked up to, but they're not that person anymore? What happened? What happened to that guy who was such a great teacher and seemed to be real solid in his faith and 
And now he's not there anymore. Maybe he's kind of living in a way that looks like he was rejecting his faith. What about so-and-so? Wow, what a great model she was for me in the way that she lived her life, the way that she ran her family. But that was then, and now, I, I don't know. I don't know what happened to her. Have you had those moments? It's a very difficult thing to be, uh, well, at least the way the writer is describing, in power of or retaining where it is that you're going and who it is you're becoming. Uh, one of the best things that hit me uh, 10 years ago uh, on sabbatical break that I had, uh, and so, uh, what was it? Dallas Willard was the author. Uh, and some people like him, some people don't like him so much. I don't know. I, I, at the time, I loved him. Um, and he was talking about, you know, watching who it is that you're becoming and all the things, busyness, and it's, I think uh, the context was for more or less for pastors and preachers. If there's anything that you need to, to be aware of and watching over in your life, it isn't so much the preaching or the other skill, you know, those things are important in some places, but watch your life and watch your character. Be aware of who it is you're becoming. Because every life brings, or every, every day brings change, does it not? We are, none of us are the same person we were a year ago. Maybe we like where we're at now, maybe we don't like it so much. But uh, if we're alive, we're changing. Life is that dynamic. Different things come at us. Some things are expected and happy and pleasurable, while other things are nasty and terrible. You wouldn't wish on your worst enemy. Things change. We change. Are you watching who it is that you're becoming? So, no one has the power, our author says, to uh, keep his own spirit captive. Man lacks the ability to both control and direct his life ultimately, to have control over all things, to keep your spirit captive, and in the end, no one has power or control even over their life. In the presence of the king, these are startling realities that ought to make us stop and go, whoa, wait a second, my allegiance, my integrity, Even my destiny. These are things that as we progress, they begin to what? Like slipping through the fingers. What I I thought I had a pretty firm handle on isn't so firm anymore. So what we're going to do next is consider those three things, but we're going to move our location. Okay? Many times we talk about as we prepare for a worship service, we talk about being in the presence of King Jesus, that this isn't just any ordinary thing. It isn't another civic responsibility. Uh, it's not the Rotary Club. No knock on the Rotary people, okay? I'm not being nasty to them. But it's, you know, what we do here is different than any other club because we, as those of you who are, are believers in Christ, you recognize and understand that of all the things that we talk about, all the you know, different religions and different options that are out there, there's one thing that we're certain. Jesus lives. So it, it's not just you know, good moral truth. We're not just trying to be better, uh, more responsible citizens today. We gather to worship the one who was crucified and then he arose. 
No one else can say that. And we're convinced that this is a truth, that this is a reality. So when we come into the presence of the king, it's not just a theory. It's not just an idea. It's not a good religious notion, uh, concept, whatever, to make us better people. Uh Uh-uh. It goes far beyond all of that. We come before somebody who is living. And he lives on, even now. So we interact in a dynamic way with a risen, living, breathing Jesus Savior who the New Testament also refers to, as I said earlier, as the king over all kings. So, number one, let's consider again allegiance. We all give our allegiance to something. Where does your allegiance lie? Okay, We're now looking at the king of kings as we consider this. Uh, political parties, yeah, it comes and goes. Uh, election cycles, whatever. Um, uh, is it country or uh, is it your family's happiness? Is it your retirement portfolio? We all serve somebody. Bob Dylan kind of brought that out a few years ago, and it's absolutely true. So who is it that you where is it that your allegiance lies? God knows, uh, Jesus knows from plenty of experience, they've, all, they've both existed forever, and you just look at Scripture, that all our oaths and our promises are worthless. There is, just like the government with Native American, okay, same thing. <laughs> Lots of promises, they're all broken, except we're doing the breaking. Uh, and there's uh, an endless supply and list of all those times that we've gone back on what we've promised to do. Even at that, you know, I'm not, well, you know, what are you talking about? Well, I can think of many times I've made promises to people I know and care for, and I never followed through on them. Or I, best of intentions, I got close, but I still failed. And maybe you're in the same boat. So our allegiances, well, they're kind of iffy. So here's the difference between how we look at oaths and promises and allegiances and who Jesus is and how he looks at them. When you're in the presence of King Jesus, you can know this, that he took an oath, he made a promise with his father, and I'm looking at Matthew chapter 26, and in the Garden of Gethsemane, shortly before uh, he's arrested and begins that, those final steps towards the cross, and the weight and the burden of what he's about to do is weighing down on him, and he's praying and, he, and, he, and as he prays, he says, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death, remain here and watch with me. He says to the disciples, he goes further and prays, verse 39, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. In all of the dreadful, horrible weight pressing down on him at that moment looking at the cross in front of him, directly in front of him. If there's any way, Father, do it. This is a burden that is unreal. But what does he promise? He makes an oath before his Father and for all of us to know of, not as I will right now, but as you will. This is your deal, and I am with it 100%. I am going to follow through Father, on your plan, not as I will, but as you will. That oath, here's the awesome thing, 
That's a promise. He makes an oath with the Father. And then that is realized fully in what Scripture calls as a new covenant. And not just any covenant, but it's the new covenant in His blood that He is about to pour out on the cross. That's what's so awesome about that promise. A promise made with Jesus is a promise kept. And that allegiance with His Father to his Father's will, is sealed in blood. That's the covenant he makes. And he makes it so that his Father's will could be completed and the process for us to know him and to be forgiven is made certain because of what Jesus did and the way that he follows through in full allegiance. He kept his oath. Number two, integrity. How do we continue to approach God matters. Now, we, if you trust in Christ, your position in the court of the King of Kings is certain. There is no more fear, Scripture says, no, no more condemnation. What kept you from being in the presence of the King is now dealt with because of the cross and the resurrection. So, where do we go from there? Integrity matters. Presence before the king with the king matters. Let's look real quickly. I don't have it on the, on the screen. Uh, but Galatians, so we're fast-forwarding and moving over into the New Testament here. Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8 says this. Do not be deceived. He's talking to believers. He's talking to his church, okay? So we have that in common. We're in church. Verse 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So first of all, don't think that because you're standing in the presence of the king that integrity no longer matters. That he just, okay, live however you want. Who cares? Uh, Yes, salvation is free, but it's not cheap. It costs Jesus his life. So it matters what we do with our lives, with our lifestyle. And the way that he describes that, he uses the terms sowing and reaping, okay? Not not a whole lot of us are into agriculture right here or depend on that in our livelihood. Uh, But he's talking to people who probably do get that and who are a part of that and that's part of their lifestyle. Uh, Whatever one sows, that what? That will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh, those things that are contrary to the king, those lifestyle issues and choices that we make, yet we're free to make them, you can make really bad choices as a Christian. You are free to do that. And what you're doing is sowing something, as he calls it, to the flesh. Pleasures and issues and things that just make us happy for the moment. Things that are contrary to to real life in Christ. You can continue to sow that out. What are you going to reap? Well, nothing. (laughs) Nothing that matters in an eternal perspective with Jesus. But he goes on to say, the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So what in the world does that mean? So in this passage, just real quickly, he's saying, well, if we go back another couple chapters, he's talking about walking by the Spirit. So to get the fuller picture, you've got to read Galatians chapter 6, 5 and 6. Uh, so important. 
walking by the Spirit, your life in the presence of the King, it is empowered, it matters, it can be something other than sowing to the flesh if and only if you're walking in step with the Holy Spirit. As God guides you, as he puts things on your mind, as he prompts you to go this direction and not that direction, you then as you respond to the Spirit, you move in His direction. You're sowing something that is of the Spirit. And that reaps eternal life. That reaps eternal life that begins now. Not just somewhere in the future after I'm dead and gone. No. Eternal life begins as I continue to live in what the Holy Spirit does. And, re- and what I mean is responding to it. Is that making sense? That's sowing to the Spirit. Being connected to the Spirit, abiding is how Jesus puts it in John 15. That is essential to our integrity as Christians. So there is no fire insurance salvation. Have you heard that before? Maybe you said that before. Maybe I've said it before. I don't know. There isn't a cheapened level of of being a Christian where I can just say words and, and kind of pull it off with God. Again, God cannot be mocked. He knows the heart. The heart what what is what matters, and that's what he looks at. If my heart really says something else, he's not fooled by mere words. What he longs for, however, is for our hearts to be given completely over to him, to his rule, to his reign as king over my heart and my mind, and for, for me, for all of us, to consider and to listen and to stay in step with what he's saying. Uh, one more thing. Destiny. Whose will you be? I, want, I looked this up. I want to make sure I use the right word. we have any grammar Nazis? Did I use the right word? Okay, good. <laughs> good. I really sweat this out because I had the wrong word first. So I switched it up. Whose? Whose will you be? If it's true that man lacks the ability to both control and direct every aspect of his life, that retaining the spirit that I mentioned earlier, and in the end, ultimately to even save his life, then what do we do? How how do we live in this uh, integrity kind of thinking, walking with the spirit? It's tough to make and keep uh, uh, decisions. tough to make and keep commitments, is it not? Every day, the decisions that we make sometimes are clouded, sometimes complicated, sometimes confusing, and every decision we make, we don't know the end of it. We don't know exactly where that's going to lead us, especially by faith. So if you're in a position, I really truly want to please God. I really do want to live for Him with integrity, but I've got options A through Z, and what do I do? What do I do next? How do, you know, how do I make sure I do the right thing or the best thing? Uh, I've been there many times. Maybe you have been too. So uh, let me end with some thoughts about destiny, about making decisions. So I'm going back to Lord of the Rings, The Minds of Moria. As I read the book and as I watched the first movie, I'm geeking out on Lord of the Rings stuff again. Okay, just stick with me. I know some people hate it, but it's really a good book. You should read it, all of them. So The Minds of Moria. Uh, this this uh, uh, group of hapless people trying to change, and elves and weird stuff, they're all trying to change the world, right, to save the world. And they're stuck. 
They're in the mines. They're, they're surrounded by darkness, and they don't know which way to go forward. And they're having a hard time, so they're stuck. And so Frodo is getting all sappy, and he's getting all whiny, uh, and um, he's trying to find uh, somebody to blame their condition on, their situation on. You know, if it hadn't been for that, we wouldn't be here, kind of stuff. So he's talking to Gandalf, the wizard, the great, wonderful, and wise wizard. He's talking to him. He says, it's a pity that Bilbo didn't kill Gollum when he had the chance. Why didn't he just kill him? If he just killed him, he deserved death then we wouldn't be stuck here right now. We wouldn't be going through all this. It's got to be his fault. It's got to be somebody's fault. Here's Gandalf's answer. Pity? It was pity that stayed Bilbo's hand. Many that live deserve death. Some that die deserve life. Can you give it to them, Frodo? Do not be too eager to deal out death in judgment. Even the very wise cannot see all ends. My heart tells me that Gollum has some part to play yet, for good or ill, before this is over. The pity of Bilbo may rule the fate of many. Ooh, that's heavy. I mean, it, it lines up, whether you like the books or not, it lines up perfectly with Ecclesiastes. Even the very wise cannot see all ends. He's absolutely right. All these paths before us if you stop in the mines of Moria, okay, stick with me, in the darkness, and you hit the wall, so to speak, and God, I don't know what to do, I'm frustrated with you, and I, what do I do next? You can't stop there. I think so many Christians do. They find that, that darkness moment uh, where maybe it's the, the sins of the past, uh, that flips a switch off, and I don't know how to go forward, or I can't go forward. You can't stop there. Even though the path is unclear, that's where responding to Jesus in faith begins for some of us and continues for the rest of us. So before King Jesus, a couple things, real practical things, okay? Ending with this. Confess your own limitations. The writer of Ecclesiastes says, Who can tell him how it will be? Not even the wise. Answer, no one. No one in that moment in the mind, uh, or in the mind and in the darkness, no one else knows for sure either. <laughs> it has to be by faith. That's the part that's so frustrating with the Christian life, and that's also the part that is so life-giving. It's got to be Jesus. Nothing else works, and everything else ultimately fails, falls short. It has to be by faith. Oh, yeah, but faith and something else. Give me something else to grasp. Nope, it's got to be by faith. We always kind of try to grab onto something else to add to our Christian life or experience to make it easier, to make it more predictable or more controllable. That's why we need Ecclesiastes so desperately bad, because it keeps reminding us it's all vain. It all goes nowhere. It's all a vapor. We've got to move forward in the fear of God and trust and response and faith and only what he can give. That's why this book is so important. We've got to confess. You can't see all the ends. And number two, embracing faith in Christ. This is the only end that you can see. That's where the New Testament, that's where Scripture takes us. The old, yeah, we don't have all the pieces in between, but 
we do see the end. When all is said and done, in, in God's view, at the end, who comes back? The King of Kings. He comes back to finally fulfill, ultimately, perfectly, powerfully, His kingdom. It'll all be known. All will be revealed. Every tear wiped from the eye. All pain is gone. Everything, all the better because it was once lost and now found. That's Jesus. That's the King of Kings. We get to see the end, and that's really, truly, as believers, what we need. We know God is there, and in pursuit of Him through the darkness, it's all good because Jesus is there with us too. Faith, our faith, is not void and it's not empty. It has substance and has meaning because of what Jesus has done. Hebrews chapter 10, back to chapter 10, we'll end with that. Hebrews chapter 10, uh, verse 19, talking about that full assurance, talking to those who really need to be assured like us. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, he's taking us into the presence of the king. That's the language that we have here. And we don't come in fearfully. Are we good enough? Nope. We have confidence because of Jesus, and he has done what needs to be done to bring us into his presence. By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest who is Jesus over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Jesus, his work covers us completely. We can come with full assurance because what he's done is more than good enough for us. Jesus is faithful as we draw near, as we respond in faith, because even in those times when we are faithless, he continues to be filled with faith. There is no, no more need to fear, no more need, am I good enough? No more need of, God, are you going to follow through? Are you going to follow through on your promises that you made? All of that becomes fully assured in faith. Now, in the darkness, you don't see all of that clearly, right? What he is asking is trust in him, that he is good enough to take you the next step through and into the darkness. Let's pray. Lord, we admit that with the writer of Ecclesiastes that we can't see the end of all things. And the frustration of which path to choose next is a real one. Lord, we ask that wherever we're at right now in life, whatever we've struggled with, whatever has caused us to trip up, so to speak, that you would speak new and fresh through your Spirit. Cause us, Lord, in all those questionings and all those uh, challenges to see new and fresh that you're the answer, that you have the end figured out, that what we need to do now truly, simply, and profoundly is to believe in you, to place our trust in you. 
Lord, we know that is the beginning of the answer that leads to new life that can only be found in you. So Lord, I pray that wherever we're at, whatever we struggled with, that we would see that and see you more clearly in the promises of your word this morning. Lord, fill this place now again with uh, the praise and, and song of your people to the one who is worthy, the one who lives, the one who is king of kings. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for listening. If you're looking for more of our sermon audio, check out our previous podcast, Tomb Runners. For upcoming events, check out our website at mycityonhill.org. Bruce Bentley will be back next week to continue the series, Finding Jesus in Ecclesiastes.